Welcome back to What in the World. My name is Ryan, being joined by Andre and Anna this week. Andre, Anna, how are you? Happy Thanksgiving. What's going on? Happy Thanksgiving. Um, not too much going on over here. I've kind of shied away from Thanksgiving celebrations over the past few years. So it's been a very nice long weekend for me. Lots of time to you know, just chill and indulge in some of the hobbies that I usually push aside. It's been nice. I bust uh, four hours to New York City early at the crack of dawn on Thanksgiving Day because I couldn't go back to San Diego because flight tickets expensive. Inflation sucks. Uh, I bust four hours. I saw the SpongeBob and Grogu uh, balloons at the Macy's Day Parade. And then I just walked around New York, got 15,000 steps in and came back on the same day. It was an exhausting day. <laughs> that sounds incredibly exhausting, but... I'm glad you did that. I mean, my my girlfriend's been trying to get us to go to the Macy's Day Parade, and I've been telling her that I don't want to do that because it sounds like too many people and too much going on. But because you sent me videos of it, I'm probably going to have to go because it does look fun. So It is too many people, and it's too much, but at least I saw the balloons. So I saw what I wanted to see, and then I left. I saw it for a couple of seconds in the uh, intersection, and then... I went. Sounds sounds worthwhile. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, oh, wow. well, it's you know another week has passed by. A lot has of course occurred in the world, um, but with all the festivities, I'm sure a lot of people have been off their phones, or at least hopefully have been off their phones. And so we're here to kind of tell you what's happened. Um, I want to begin with Israel. I think we talked about last week the Netanyahu's return, uh, and now it is basically solidified. So Netanyahu is prime minister designate. Uh, he has signed a coalition deal with the far right, uh, the Jewish Power Party, led by Itamar Ben-Gvir. Uh, and in this deal, he will become national security minister. It's an expanded ministry role uh, that includes the national police, as well as the border police in the West Bank. That role, uh, the border police in the West Bank was originally, before this deal, um, overseen by the defense ministry, as well as a bit of the kind of public security ministry. Now it falls under Ben Gvir's ministry. Uh, and Ben Gvir is a very controversial, I mean, that is just a generous way to talk about it. He's a very controversial in individual. Uh, he is certainly has far right views, uh, has, you know, Jewish nationalist views, uh, views about a one state solution, basically expelling many Palestinians who he considers, uh, the, you know, the ones he considers security threats, making sure they don't live in Israel or the territories anymore. In 2007, he was convicted of racist incitement uh, against Arabs. And so uh, this has, while it, while this deal has kind of relaxed the four year, years of instability, it will be a balancing act for Netanyahu to keep this all together. Because, I mean, it's it's a coalition, but I don't know how long it stands. I'm very fascinated by the personality of Benjamin Netanyahu, not the personality, but him as an individual, right? Because you've seen him essentially sort of alternate in and out. He was prime minister, right, for about 12 years between 09 and 21. And he was also prime minister in the late 90s. And uh, he was always seen as this definitely right wing figure. But how his coalition has evolved, especially in this latest election, is so interesting. Ryan, uh, so funny story. I'm a collector of autographs, so I got a Netanyahu signed book recently. And I think political memoirs are really cool and interesting insights into 
how people present themselves. And I think Netanyahu during his book tour had gone on Bill Maher. Bill Maher is certainly more of a left-leaning person, but with very pro-Israeli uh, views. And Netanyahu, when he's on sort of the U.S. media circuit, he seems like a moderate, or at least to us, he seems like very much a moderate and stuff. But domestically, you know, he's leaning into this, like, not necessarily him, but his people are leaning into this far-right rhetoric. Uh, and it's just fascinating, I think. I, I think another interesting personality study would be if Narendra Modi, in India, right? Because uh, the BJP, uh, they have many elements that are considered far right, but the person themselves have not necessarily, like Modi himself has not necessarily, uh, what do you call it, been at the forefront of espousing far right rhetoric in the very recent past. He's more portrayed himself as being the leader above the fray, whereas his stooges are all really going far into this far right stuff. So uh, I think it's, an interesting thing to observe who's in Netanyahu's cabinet and who's really espousing a lot of this stuff uh, as a proxy, almost, you know? Yeah, I think it's a, a great point. And we'll see what happens here. I think really, if you kind of take a step back from the actual national political uh, lens of this and kind of think outside from the U.S. perspective, this creates a headache for Joe Biden and the United States as the Iran nuclear deal is still you know, undetermined where that's going to go. Uh, Biden has not really spent a lot of time on any sort of like Middle East peace process. Um, and with a more far right government in Israel, of course, there will be increased tensions. Who knows where that leads to? And so I imagine the people um, at the White House are, are you know, scratching their heads over what's going to happen next. So interesting. I think the personal diplomacy thing will also play a part into this. Biden and Netanyahu have had a longstanding uh, friendship uh, essentially for i think decades netanyahu because he spent a lot of time in the u.s as a young guy uh knew a lot of people he was friends with donald trump's father he was friends with mitt romney back in the 80s he's he knows a lot of people uh so i'm very interested to see how this personal diplomacy goes between biden and netanyahu especially when netanyahu inevitably visits uh United States. I felt like during the Trump administration, Netanyahu was always in the United States uh, for some reason or the other. But uh, I'll, I'll be very curious to see how these relationships go. I always love sort of analyzing the one-on-one -on -one relationships between leaders. So yeah. Absolutely. All right. So moving on to what else is happening in the world. Uh, Azerbaijan has canceled talks with Armenia. They've also rejected the involvement of France into these talks. And for those who have been listening to What in the World for a while, we when the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, which was this conflict between Armenia, or I guess ongoing conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan first erupted, uh, it was basically a, a full-scale war that occurred. Uh, there is this piece of land, a, a couple pieces of land really, between Armenia and Azerbaijan that these countries have been disputing over uh, for a very long time. And it was a frozen conflict, and then it was a hot conflict, and now it's a bit more frozen. Um, but nonetheless, there have been many attempts by many different countries to sue for peace, and peace was largely had. But now that Azerbaijan is essentially balking at any sort of peace talks, uh, uncertainty as to where this is really going to go. Um, any thoughts on this? Any more information? I have not actually, to be quite honest, have not paid too much close attention to this because I thought this was like a done deal and that there was going to be peace, but it seems like it's not so easy. Yeah, I don't think this is anywhere close to a done deal. If we're talking about 
very nationalist inspired conflict. This is one of them. Um, this conflict has been going on since the early days of the Soviet Union or even before it. So I think any sort of peace is I don't know, in that grand scheme, very tenuous. Um, recently, I've been hearing a lot of talk about how little Azerbaijan um, could probably be pressured into some peace negotiations right now because they find themselves in a really strategically advantageous place. Um, Aliyev has decided that he doesn't want to work with Macron in these most recent talks coming up in December. And that probably, at least at face value, is because France has a much higher Armenian population than they do Azerbaijani population. So Macron is naturally a little bit more outspoken in favor of that community. And he says, or Aliyev says, that Macron is just an overt friend of Armenia, so he can't come to the negotiating table. But behind the scenes a little bit, we take a step back. You look at this conflict, Azerbaijan is more or less supported by Turkey. Armenia is, again, more or less supported by Russia. During the CSTO, they have this mutual pact where if Azerbaijan ever attacks Armenia's in territorial integrity, not in Nagorno-Karabakh, but actually mainland Armenia, um, Russia would have to get involved. So uh, Azerbaijan is seeing this strategic opportunity with Russia very distracted by the war in Ukraine and also by the energy crisis. Azerbaijan is really positioning itself to be a major exporter of energy, to ramp up energy production, specifically oil, in the next coming years. And so this puts them in a great position with Russia being on the outs with a lot of European countries. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of incentive right now for them not to go to the negotiating table. Yeah, it's it's a it's a fascinating issue and it's an important issue as well. It's something that where you see a more micro level geopolitical happenings that we always talk about, you know, the big countries and the and the big conflicts, but this is in, important in my mind, one, because it shows how the you know the jockeying for power amongst smaller states, ones that have resources, ones that have actually quite significant militaries. If you kind of followed the war from the beginning, you saw how technology and more advanced technologies like drone technology played a very important role in the conflict. And that, I mean, really is like the forefront of how innovation occurs in the military space. And so uh, something to pay attention to on a, a variety of reasons. And so we'll, we'll stay tuned uh, with this as we kind of move forward in the next weeks. We'll have Anna as our resident expert. So thank you, Anna. Um, moving on next to Iran, but really Iran in the context of the World Cup. Uh, as we talked about last week as well, there are protests ongoing in Iran after the death of a young woman who allegedly was violating the rules surrounding the proper wearing of the hijab. Uh, and in the kind of fallout of her death, mass protests against the regime for the regime's policies, the regime has really cracked down quite hard. Uh, over 14,000 people have been arrested, 21 have faced death sentences, and six people have been sentenced to death. Now, the Iranian soccer team, which is at the World Cup in Qatar, uh, they, at their first game, did not sing the national anthem uh, in support of the protesters back home. They did, however, sing quietly at the second game. Um, interestingly, the United States and Iran play in the next match, um, which will be, a, a, outside of the politics, a good game. Um, so state media has basically ignored all of this. Uh, Iran's supreme leader has praised the security services, saying that they are 
cracking down against rioters and thugs, people breaking the law. Of course, if you know, if you just look at this at face value, these are people protesting for the rights of women, especially in a country that has very anti-women policies. Uh, so uh, very interesting to see on the world stage. Of course, you know, we have international sports is always a spectacle for the sporting aspect, but there's always politics involved. And it's nice to see that the Iranian national soccer team, which of course, like they have family at home, like them protesting, it's their own personal risk and the risk of their families as well. And so a lot of courage seen there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And folks, uh, we're not necessarily going to talk about the World Cup itself uh, this week because we just did an entire episode on it and that released on Wednesday. But yeah, Ryan, I, I do think that the protest uh, by the Iranian team on the soccer field, not singing along to their national anthem, is quite notable just because of the sheer consequences that that would bring. I mean, this is the national team in, a, in a, an internationally public setting, uh, essentially embarrassing, you know, their country's government, essentially, right? Uh, and no, you know, the government would likely be very, very angry about this, but I'm curious to see like what action, if any action, would actually be taken against the players, against their family, because politically speaking, I mean, the government is in a very precarious uh, position right now. Uh, these protests have been happening for weeks and weeks. Uh, people have died. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, international furor about these uh, protests, but it, it'll be interesting to see how this sort of proceeds, where these protests go, where the government goes, if it goes. Yeah, absolutely. There's not seem to be kind of any decrease in the protest movement, which is really quite amazing to see. And so um, I hope everyone kind of stays up to date with what's happening in Iran. Uh, it is really, as we've kind of said, week over week, just an amazing feat and a lot of courage being demonstrated uh, by the people of Iran. Um, so... We're going to take a hard shift and go talk about the United States, um, TikTok, for all of those who do not know, which are probably anyone listening over the age of like 40. Um, and I, I don't even want to begin to explain to them what it is, but it's so for those who do know what TikTok is, uh, it is undergoing a lot of review under the United States national security mechanisms. So TikTok is a Chinese company. Uh, it alleged. TikTok, right? Not TikTok. I love TikTok. those things. Oh, gosh. That. Did you really interrupt me for that dumb joke? Yeah, I did. Uh, okay, well, we're going to move past that. And everyone listening now knows um, that that was had. So <laughs> anyway, TikTok uh, is a Chinese company. It allegedly has very close ties with the Chinese government, even to the extent of the Chinese government having backdoors, again, allegedly into the kind of the access to personal data, which uh, is concerning because millions of Americans use TikTok. And so the concern, Ryan, is that the Chinese sort of legal system allows for the Chinese government essentially to access data held by these certain private companies with general ease. So the Chinese government wants to do it. They can use that law to essentially access that data. And uh, this is fundamentally different, although obviously there are legitimate criticisms of our own social media companies, Twitter, Facebook, especially Twitter these days. Uh, about you know their data collection habits and so on but the thing is the u.s government can't access that data with ease we've had terrorist attacks where apple has literally refused to unlock iphones for the u.s government forcing the fbi to hire 
uh, people who can actually unlock it themselves without the cooperation of Apple. This has been a big schism between the US government and a lot of the big tech companies. In China, however, way more gray and that gray zone between the Chinese government and companies like TikTok is why there's such a big concern by a lot of US policymakers and a lot of US lawmakers about the nature of uh, TikTok. Uh, again, remember, we saw the Trump administration uh, seriously discuss banning TikTok. Now, that wasn't just a Trump thing. That's also a Biden thing, because there are many serious conversations happening in the administration about a possible ban of TikTok or some other action against TikTok, because its parent companies are Chinese-based and would be privy to some of those Chinese laws. Uh, we're not sure how those Chinese laws would execute. I think people are still wondering about it. But certainly there are many negotiations happening behind the scenes between the U.S. government and the owner and the runners of TikTok about what can be done. But we're also seeing a lot of uh, rhetoric from U.S. policymakers, a lot of U.S. policymakers in national security uh, about the quote unquote dangers of TikTok. Yeah, it's a it is a huge concern. And there's a, again, as I mentioned at, at the outset, a lot of different bodies within the U.S. government from the Treasury Department, FBI, right, FBI Commerce, they've, they've said it's, it's a real national security threat. This is not about the kind of commercial aspect of this. Um, and they're worried so much so that they're trying to find ways to either have TikTok's kind of data being stored in the United States by U.S. companies or really just in a flat out ban of TikTok. So uh, to be determined what happens here. Basically, you can physically store the data in the United States uh, when I think China was making some deals with India about some of their own like uh, telecommunications equipment. Uh, part of the conversations around that was actually having the physical sites for storage uh for the data storage in India itself. Therefore, India would only have access to that data, not China. So I think there's a physical aspect to this as well. But uh, Ryan, you know, you said it, the FCC commissioner has called for a potential ban. Uh, the FBI director, Christopher Wray, who again is a career official, uh, said that it could be used as a massive surveillance app, not just for surveillance, but also for the propagation of uh, propaganda, essentially. Uh, with the way he said it, essentially, uh, you know, TikTok could control what type of content goes out to young folks, and uh, that would cause young folks to be perhaps, quote unquote, indoctrinated in certain ideologies. Uh, but I mean, I think that latter aspect of, quote unquote, indoctrination or the falling for propaganda, uh, th that argument is very interesting because one could argue that a lot of other social media companies with the way they, you know, filter and, you know, sort of construct their own news feeds could very much do the same thing. But uh, it, it, I think the TikTok thing is very interesting, uh, especially for a lot of young folks who are very avid on the platform. It's also worth noting that the version of TikTok that China exports to other countries is wildly different from the version of TikTok in terms of content and usage by mostly young children that they have within China. So in China, most kids can only access educational videos. They can access videos about you know their country. They can um, only use the app, I think, for up to 40 minutes a day. And then it locks because 
the Chinese government and the Chinese companies obviously recognize the dangers that the social media poses to young kids and being able to influence them. And also, I don't know, just from an educational perspective. So the fact that they're not allowing TikTok in the state that we know it to be used in their own country, I think is something that we should at least be paying a lot of attention to. I do have to add a disclaimer, though, that I learned all of this off of TikTok. So That's hilarious. <laughs> if only we could limit, uh, do the 40 minute limits on our own social media apps. I think that'd be so helpful for the for the world. But we live in a free country, so we can't do that uh, disclaimer. But uh, yeah, that's actually a very interesting note, Anna. That's I, I, did, I did not know that. I mean, it's quite amazing. And I, I actually also saw that on TikTok. I have since deleted my TikTok. Uh, I am no more on TikTok. Um, and, you know, listen, everyone has kind of their own opinions on the use of their data. Some people say, oh, you know, my data is already out there. Who cares if someone else has it? But, you know, I, I would, you know, strongly encourage people to, you know, consider the pros and cons of, you know, having your data maybe accessed by a malign foreign government. Um, well, but, but I, I do think, though, the U.S. government and policymakers have to do a better job at communicating why they do believe that it's dangerous, yes. because a lot of people do have those legitimate concerns about social media companies like Facebook and Twitter, Google, YouTube, and so on, collecting our data like like wild dogs, essentially, going after a zebra carcass. Or That's a weird analogy. But, uh, I mean, there are many legitimate concerns, and when you see old guys and gals basically talking about this in the halls of congress when a lot of them aren't familiar with technology uh it's a turnoff to a lot of people the biden administration recently had a lot of tiktok influencers uh, at the white house and again tiktok influencers because they are getting their influence from tiktok so i do think the u.s government has to do a better job at communicating why they believe what they believe why they think it's dangerous if it is dangerous and present that evidence in a very accessible manner to a lot of young people because again it's young people who are using this uh, it's a very very valid and fair point and something that is i think really always a challenge for the government to do when they're ever they're talking about like a quote-unquote national security concern uh the messaging has never been stellar so yeah, it's it's you know we'll see how the administration uh, deals with this communication and the actual threat itself. Um, I want to just include two more things before we wrap today. It's staying on the theme of China, there have been mass protests in Xinjiang province, with it, which is a northern province that is home to the Uyghur minority population, about ten million uh, Uyghurs. Of course, I think we we've talked about the the Uyghur um, population and the quote-unquote cultural genocide against them by the Chinese government. Uh, so essentially, there's been these COVID lockdowns in China. There are tens of thousands of new cases. Uh, uh, President Xi has had his zero COVID policy, essentially saying that if there's any COVID, complete lockdown, no one can kind of go outside the lockdown. It is very strict and people are sick and tired of it. And so there was a fire in Xinjiang province, 10 people died, and the public is blaming the government for a very slow response due to the lockdown restrictions. And so this has led to mass public anger across China over the COVID restrictions. We've seen protests against the government. Some of them have even gotten violence. Uh, this kind of goes to show that you know China, which is a country that has very strict policies in many different areas and has a very heavy-handed responses, uh, in many situations, is now meeting resistance from the people, which we don't really see often. 
It's very interesting. I mean, again, China's lockdown policies have been uh, quite draconian to some with these like, you know, really significantly harsh uh, lockdowns uh, still going on. Right. Uh, at the beginning of the year, we had Ian Bremmer come on to talk about his top 10 risks. And he said China's uh, zero COVID policy is the number one risk, right? Because it could disrupt uh, international commerce, trade, the economy, especially with manufacturing and all the supply chains that flow through. Uh, and given that the fact that a lot of the Chinese, I think, vaccines have been notably uh, weaker and that the population doesn't have herd immunity, uh, a breakout of that virus could be significantly bad uh, for the Chinese, uh, for many Chinese cities and so on. So uh, zero COVID continues. It certainly does. Uh, all right. The last story, I want to end on a high note or maybe something a little more, you know, fun. I don't know about fun. Anyway, in Colombia, I saw this article <laughs> that a judge has been suspended after being caught on camera smoking in her underwear during a virtual hearing. The hearing is on Zoom. We're currently recording this podcast on Zoom. Just for everyone's awareness, I'm not smoking in my underwear, nor is anyone else other than Andre, maybe, whose camera is off. And so, Andre, please tell us, are you smoking in your underwear? It's 10 a.m. on a Saturday, so I'm not a morning person. And on a week, I'm not <laughs> any less of a morning person. That wasn't a definitive answer that either was, way. That was not a no, yeah. <laughs> he can neither confirm nor deny <laughs> Well, you did talk. Well, I want to work for the government, Ryan. I can't be doing that uh, stuff. It's still on the federal level. But uh, yeah, you do certainly talk about ending it on a high note. Uh, God, you and the jokes today. Um, All right. Well, I just thought, you know, we all are living in this Zoom world. And so you always got to be careful. You know, make sure your your camera's off if you want to be in your underwear or, you know, or smoking during, I guess, a hearing. So you know, we'll we'll end it there on a quote unquote high note. Andre, thank you. Um, I'm just waiting for the first time we see like a congressional hearing with someone coming in on Zoom and like you know that happened in Canada. Look it up. There was one guy. I think he did it twice in a row. Which at that point you ask like, was it an accident? I don't know. <laughs> to each their own. Um, all right. Thank you everyone for listening to this week's edition of What in the World, and we will be back next week with the world's events. Thank you. <laughs>